So I figured start a school, things getting busy again. I'd like to do a second period of meditation today. Anyone have any argument with that to start out? Okay. like you to close your eyes, put both of your feet on the floor in front of you. And be very intentional about this together with me. Let's take five deep breaths in. Hold and out again. Now. Now, continuing this mindful breathing, just feel yourself right here, right now. I get a first focus on your feet. Just feel your feet and your shoes planted on this earth, this ground, this ground of being. If it feels good, sort of scrunch up your toes and then let them relax. Let them go. If you're holding any tension in your feet, just let it go. Continuing your mindful breathing. Just feel yourself planted and rooted right here. Traveling up our bodies. Our legs, our calves, our thighs. Yours, right here, right now. If you're holding any tension, just relax. Just let yourself sit down and in. Traveling again up our bodies. Get to our stomach, our torso. Feel our breath rising and falling, our stomach in and out. Our eyes are all closed. Let your stomach go. Your diaphragm rising up and down without rush, without hurry. Focus now on your shoulders. Reaching into your neck. Let your shoulders drop. If you're holding any stress there, just let them be. Continuing our breathing. Focus now your face. Feeling any tension, any stress. Tell them we'll call them back. We're busy now. <laughs> That's good. Focus on your face. Smile. Give you a big grin. Give you a small smile. Perhaps that kind of smile that you've seen on the Faces of saints and sages from so many different traditions. As you breathe here, offer your thanks for your feet, your legs, your torso, your shoulders, your faces. If you're so moved, offer your thanks beyond you to whatever your experience of divinity is.
And when you're ready, open your eyes. Continue this mindful breathing, though. And let's be here together. This is a more condensed version of a basic mindfulness meditation that I did yesterday when I was at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Harrisburg. They had a day-long series of workshops based upon their addictions and alcoholism and recovery ministry. It was fascinating. They brought in someone, in this case, who has been leading mindfulness meditation for many, many years. In the experience of addiction, of alcoholism, my own experience, there is so much running away from seeking to anesthetize ourselves from our experience. And so mindfulness is a great attribute to be able to develop in practice and in life. So we are able to be right here right now. I remember many years ago when I was in a period in which I was absolutely seized by chronic daily anxiety. I had the worst psychotherapist of my entire life and I have seen a lot of therapists. I mean, I bored this guy. He bored me. He fell asleep twice during our sessions. But at a time in my life in which I think it was probably last resort, last resort, he said, let's try some meditation together. I mean, clearly because the talk stuff wasn't working. And he had me go up in what turned out to be a half hour, but it felt like five minutes for the first time in months. I was able to relax. He had me go up body part by body part just through my body. And for the first time in months, I was actually there in myself not racing ahead or racing forward or racing back in guilt or grief or anything else that lack of mindfulness does to us. I love this mindfulness meditation as basic as it is. And it is related in some ways to my own daily spiritual practice because it helps us in the best way, break down our lives, localize our gratitude for actual parts of our body. Remember who we are, be there in the moment, focusing our awareness. In a different but related way, this is what the movie and the book, the more famous book, Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, is all about. It is all about learning to break down our lives in healthy ways. Now, the story does not begin that way. How many of you have either seen the movie or read the book? All right, a fair number, a fair number. I've only read parts of the book, so I'm going to go on what was in the movie that I saw. Elizabeth Gilbert at the beginning of the movie has some of those classic, is this all there is, is that all there is kinds of moments. The house she thought she was building, the home she thought she was building does not suffice. A marriage breaks down, her marriage breaks down, another relationship breaks down, and she had left with the ruins of her life, the shards of her life, really wondering what matters, what counts. And at least with the good blessing in her life to be an accomplished writer, she decides to leave the normal confines of her life, gets a kind of fat check that's written for this book that she's going to write, and travels to three different countries, Italy, India, and Indonesia. Eat India, pray, excuse me, eat Italy, pray India, and love Indonesia. Now, I have to say, in terms of the movie, the only part that I found completely dissatisfying was the last part, the love part. Not because what she finds there is illegitimate. It, in fact, is very, very deep and very, very rich. It just isn't done very well. It's the only part of the movie that really I felt like I was watching one of those Lifetime movie network movies. You know, it was just thumbs up too quickly. I didn't love it so much. But there was a lot that I did like about the movie. And certainly spiritually, there's a lot that I loved about her story. Her life 
as it is in the beginning, is broken down. So she decides, well, I am going to break down the rest of it and see if I can find something that is really there. This is a great approach when we are overwhelmed, if we're ever overwhelmed and feel that our life is just racing out in front of us and we can't quite catch up to it. I think of the great words from the writer Anne Lamont from her book, Bird by Bird, Instructions on Writing and Life. She tells a story many years ago about her younger brother, who was maybe five or six at this point, very early on in schooling. And he was given, with three weeks to spare, three weeks' notice, a report on, you know, the birds of North America, or the birds of North Carolina, or whatever, North California, wherever they were living. And three weeks dwindles to two weeks, and he hasn't done anything. And two becomes one, he hasn't done anything. And then seven days becomes six, becomes five, becomes four, becomes three, becomes two, becomes one. And it's the night before it's due, and he has done absolutely nothing, and he is sitting at their dining room table, and he just starts, you know, those overwhelmed sobbing. <laughs> you know, he just, he's just building himself up. He's just going to, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And his dad, who recognizes, he's been asking him all along, you know, have you done your report? Have you done a report? He's going to allow himself to sink or swim. But his dad sits down while Anne Lamont, in her childlike form, is watching this, puts his arm around his son and says, you can do this bird by bird, buddy. You can do this. That's breaking down a problem. Bird by bird. Eat, pray, love does this in a related way, but different in the other direction. Elizabeth Gilbert breaks down her life to find out if there is anything reliable in her life. Whether there is anything true left in her experience. See, she's not trying to fix the flaw so much as she is trying to find out the kernel and the heart that still exists. As she goes through her journey, she recognizes she is not looking for the perfect part of life, the flawless part of life. She is looking for the reliable part of life. In this way, my best teacher, in terms of searching for imperfection, beautiful imperfection and not perfection, was the relief pitcher Dan Quisenberry. Any of you? Well, you know, any Dan Quisenberry ring a bell? All right. A few of you. The story will be the same even if you never saw him pitch. Dan Quisenberry was a really unique pitcher because he was not your typical jock. He was a poet. He died an untimely death in his early 40s from brain cancer. He really was a thoughtful, thoughtful man. Dan Quisenberry had this kind of delivery on the mound that was all arms and elbows and completely unorthodox. No doubt, and many times in his life, people tried to fix him to get him to do it better. The thing was, the way he did it was, in fact, quite effective. Too often, very often, when a pitcher or a hitter is trying to understand what's going wrong in their swing or in their pitching, they said, I found the flaw in my swing or I found the flaw in my delivery. Because Dan Quisenberry was an orthodox and because he was a very witty person, he said, no, for him it was different. I found the delivery in my flaw, he said, in my imperfections, I found my gift. This is very different than looking for the exact right way or looking for the certain way to do something. It is very similar in many ways to a concept of faith that they don't mention in the movie, but I'm sure Elizabeth Gilbert became familiar with. It is the Hindu understanding. The word for faith means not I give my assent to or not I agree with some concept. It means, Shraddha, what we set our hearts upon 
It is not faith that finds its grounding in concepts or intellectual certainty, but upon the foundation of that which we consider to be reliable. Eat, pray, love is a quest story. And I think the true measure of a spiritual quest is not found out finally in the distance between uncertainty and certainty. It's not as if we go from that place of not knowing to absolutely knowing and then everything is fine. No, Eat, Pray, Love shows us that the true measure of the quest is between that place of superficial living, painful living, where we're not quite sure if anything is reliable, to that place of knowing finally what is trustworthy for us. There are two different kinds, I think, of religion in the world that are bigger than any denomination, bigger than East or West. There are religious traditions that promise us absolute certainty. This is what you can believe without any doubt. Ours is not that kind of faith, but you probably know that already. But there is a deeper and a different kind of spiritual religious being. That which truly does seek out that which we can trust and set our hearts upon. Henry Nouwen was a teacher and a professor. He taught at Harvard and Yale and University of Chicago, lived for many of his years truly in the life of the mind, the religious and spiritual academy. But what he did once when he was on sabbatical is he spent a number of months with a circus troupe, with the flyers, with the sort of daring young men on the flying trapeze, that kind of group. And he became fascinated, fascinated with those who flew and those who caught He says, so often we spend our attention, if we're ever at the circus, just on those who tumble through the air. But he said, truly, it is the catchers that are the important part. And in fact, that's, well, why they have a net there, because sometimes it doesn't always go really well. For Henri Nouwen, this was the model of faith that he understood. It is not about certainty. Life would not be thrilling. The circus wouldn't be thrilling if there was absolute certainty that every time we flew, we were going to be caught. He said the signature thing in that relationship is not certainty. It is trust. Trust that if we do our part, that there will be something there. Not an answer, but a relationship. I don't think the spiritual quest, Elizabeth Gilbert's or anyone else's for that matter, is truly a quest for answers. It is the quest to grow our lives, to develop our characters. Not in such a way that we know absolute permanence of everything we believe, but to be the kind of people who know true durability and adaptability and can change and grow as life needs us to. This is where Elizabeth Gilbert finds herself in the beginning of her story. She knows, as I have found out as well, and many of us have, that the best position to learn to actually start to pray, to develop a spiritual life, is when life has already forced you to your knees And you figure in that position, well, let's try something new. Now, in the beginning, she begins her prayer with, and I love these words, not knowing how to begin at all. God, I'm a big fan of your work. (laughs) She knows that sort of, you know, know, form of address, not quite adequate. And at first, her prayers are for that, tell me what to do. It is that quest at first for certainty. But that doesn't suffice because the only thing that she's certain of is that her life isn't working out at all. That's the only certainty that she has. So rather than claim or search for that certainty, she looks instead in the opposite direction. She moves outward 
and beyond what she knows. She says in a wonderful phrase to a friend before she takes off on her journey, on her pilgrimage, on her quest, she says, I need to be unnerved. I need to be unnerved. She's saying she needs to go beyond just the familiarity of her life in order to find what she is looking for. I was listening to this past week, a song by Peter Mayer. You know, we do one of his, if you've been around before, a beautiful song called Holy Now. And actually, the song musically isn't all that great, so I don't know if we'll do it. Maybe we could rearrange it. But it's called God is a River. And the character, the main narrator in this story, basically says, you know, he's in the river. The torrents are rushing by. And I found the rock. I found the rock and that's my savior and that's going to give me surety and that's going to give me certainty and that's my foundation and I'm all good and taken care of. But the river has a surprise for him. The river says, no, the rock is not God. It is the larger flow of the river, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, sometimes peaceful, sometimes raging. That's where your spirit will really be fed. And it is in that unfamiliar life that Elizabeth Gilbert finally starts to find what she is looking for beyond, as we say, her and our comfort zone. Now, I don't know many of you. Perhaps you will be so blessed. And if you do, please tell me because I will just I think this is amazing. Not many of us will be so blessed that we will get a fat check to someone to say travel around the globe for a year. Visit all these amazing places. And mostly today I'm talking about the India portion of her trip. Because that's what drew me most in the movie. But I got to tell you, the one thing that they really get right in the Italy portion is that a simple place of spaghetti with sauce on it and a little sprig of basil. They capture how good that is. (laughs) Having someone who's just returned from Rome not so many months ago, they got that part right. But, you know, many of us are not going to be able to leave home for a full year and go and do what she did. For those of us who might have to do this work closer to home, we can still do it and still find out what is truly reliable if we are searching for it. But I think it means asking ourselves on a regular basis, on a regular basis, when you take away or we take away all of our titles, some of the negative ones, perhaps drug abuser, victim or criminal, some of the basic professional ones, some of the good ones, mom, dad, beloved son, beloved daughter. When you can take away these titles, recognizing that all titles, no matter how good they might be, truly they refer to something that is perceived from the outside. And if we can find distance every once in a while behind, beneath, below the titles that we give to our lives, And know that no words can finally capture or keep the holy and hidden heart of our lives. Then this is entering into the same realm of being that Elizabeth Gilbert enters into. To get beyond the words, the titles that we give ourselves. I want to invite those of you who might be looking to do this in your time of your life to sign up for our silent retreat. The great thing about silence, duh, is that there aren't words there. But there are in here (laughs) and getting back in touch with the unfamiliarity of our own minds, of our own hearts is a wonderful thing to do because it can be so uncomfortable. And because it's so uncomfortable and just like in mindfulness meditation, we learn not to run away. 
then we can start to discover who we truly are. And I got to tell you, if the idea of being just in eight hours of silence on the first Saturday in October just scares you and you can feel yourself getting tense. I'm not signing up for this. I'm not signing up for this. I'm not signing up for this. Please sign up. Find that unfamiliar life. Thoreau talked about it in his experience of silence and mindful living that he called Walden. He said he went to look for the essentials of life and not to discover that by the time he had come to die, that he actually hadn't lived. Whether it's Eat, Pray, Love or Walden or a movie that I really liked last year and a book I loved that I preached on into the wild, whatever it is. The quest brings us into that place of unfamiliarity and invites us to ask the question in that, what is truly reliable there and trustworthy? As Thoreau put it, what is essential for our life? We can recognize what is essential. We can, I don't want to say move beyond the superficial stuff. Maybe we can claim those titles that we have just in a healthy way and not get too attached to them. Being in unfamiliar circumstances on the outside, we can become reacquainted with what is inside each and every one of us. Of course, this work is not easy. It is difficult. It is sometimes the most challenging thing that we do not want to do. At the end of her story, Elizabeth Gilbert says, I believe there's a theory called the physics of the quest. I don't know if she really proves that there are actual physics of a quest, but what she's really saying that many have said before are absolutely true. Seek and ye shall find. Thoreau said, go confidently in the direction of your dreams and you will find things in there that you will find in the uncommon hours of life if we are willing to risk. She experiences it finally in that moment in the ashram where she is spending those months in India. As her teacher tells her, and she finally experiences it, not just thinks it, she says and believes it, feels it. God dwells within you as you. Not far away, but in the intimacy of our own lives. It's a Sikh teacher, a Sikh guru named Tegd Bagador, who says that no matter sort of how unfamiliar our surroundings become, he says, truly, the journey is always inward. He said, why do you go to the forest in search of the divine? God lives in all and abides in all as well. As fragrance dwells in a flower or reflection in a mirror, so the divine dwells in everything. Finally, he says, seek, therefore, in your own heart. It's not easy. Actually, my favorite scene in the movie, the most funny thing in the movie for me, and actually the most honest recollection on film I've ever seen of the difficulties of spiritual practice is when she is sitting in the ashram and she's still very much an initiate in the ways of meditation and cultivating attention and awareness and contemplation. And she is struggling with her monkey mind. It is just hopping over there and over here and over there and over here and over there and over here. And she cannot be in the moment. And she thinks that she has found it for a second when she starts fantasizing in her meditation of how beautiful the walls will be in her meditation room when she gets back home. <laughs> now, she's wise enough by this point to know that that's a premature arrival. That is not real finding nor seeking. Example of what the great Buddhist teacher Chugyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism. Spiritual materialism is the idea that some future state, some place, some idea, some person even can help us escape in a perfect way 
from the difficulty and the messiness of our own lives. Whether it's material materialism or romantic materialism or spiritual materialism, it is to be trapped by the trappings of that which we think is perfect and can save us from ourselves. Ultimately, she discovers this, that the meditation cushion is only as useful or beneficial as the quality of the butt that sits down on it. That's deeper than the spiritual materialism. The point of any spiritual practice is not to escape from our lives, not to get that parachute and jump out of the plane and so it'll be perfect out in the air. It is to engage our lives, know ourselves as we are, and then transform from that place. The song that I really loved gets at the challenge of always waiting and wanting and waiting and wanting. A song that I loved when I was a teen because it was so much about my own romantic, uh, romantic angst was How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. Any of you remember that? How Soon Was Now by the Smiths? Yeah, you remember it. The minute we ask how soon is now, we're really in trouble (laughs) because it means we're always waiting is now. Now, unless we can recognize that now already is now and we're here and that's it. And we start from this place. If we're always asking how soon is now, how soon is now, how soon is now, we will be waiting for an arrival that will never, ever come. Like Elizabeth Gilbert, we can catch ourselves sometimes fleeing the scene of our lives as if we were fleeing a crime. But we're not. It is sometimes that simple stuff, the reliable stuff, the path of devotion, which leads us back and down and inward to our lives with loving awareness, without judgment, just recognizing that those simple tools of cultivating consciousness and presence are what so many of us have been waiting for all along. This is what we call at Wellsprings, the path of living with integrity. One of our core values is this, that we aspire to be a community of deep listening, possessing the humility and the vulnerability necessary so that we are able to make positive change. To be in silence, to face the monsters in here, to be in the unfamiliar places, probably more than anything else we requires is vulnerability and humility. And from that, we can break it down. Because that's really what the title of the book and the movie are all about. Eat, pray, love. Food for the body. Food for the soul. Food for the heart. Comes down to pretty elemental things. I'm going to give the final word just about to Thoreau. Because he's smarter than I am. He said, in proportion to how we simplify our lives, the universe will appear less complex. And our solitude won't be lonely. And our poverty won't seem so poor. And when we experience our weakness, we will not feel weak. Not certainty, but simplicity. Breaking it down to what really matters this is real risk because there are no guarantees going in it's real faith because we generate faith as we live through it and ultimately it's i believe the only true and real reward there is which is being able to call in our feet our legs our torso our bodies our shoulders our faces our souls to be able to be called in this life and with this life that we are our own.
What other reward were we hoping for? Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of what is now, here in this very moment, may we commit our hearts, our hands, our work, our lives to recognizing that inside of us, at whatever stage of growth we find it to be, there is a seed, a seed of wholeness, of awakening, of knowing the path of risk and reliability in this life. Of being able to hold it all together. To grow our lives. To grow our compassion. To grow our hearts. May each of us in our own way. Start on this work. This day. Amen. Please rise in body or in spirit for our last song today.
We extinguish this light, but certainly not our own. And together we say, as we release this flame from its faithful service today, we allow the spark in each of us to burn on, to warm our compassion, to fire our delight, to light our paths today, tomorrow, and always. And may each and every one of us this day be in peace and go in peace and share our peace. May it be so. For all of us. Let's put our hands together. Guys, take us out. <laughs>